Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly slash fortnightly movie podcast. I'm Darren. I'm Andrew. And this week we're talking about No Country for Old Men, Joel and Ethan Cohen's 2007 at neo-noir western. That's right. It's a great film. Actually, it's a very recent film, actually. It's one of the more recent films that we've discussed outside the context of um, this just in. I mean, we've done we, Prisoners as well. Yeah, but, we have Prisoners. But I think in general... I mean, the chocolate bar. Because of the um, the content of the list, we sort of looked at, at older films. Because this is one of the films that I remember seeing in the cinema very, very specifically. Um, and I remember particularly because it was released in the US in 2007 as part of a qualifying run for the Oscars in 2008. But in Ireland, it was released at the end of January 2008. And I... I started writing about film in early 2009, and part of the reason that I did that was because 2008 was... it a was... Fast and the Furious movie? Oh, no, wait, wait. Um, it was... Um... Wolverine. Was Wolverine, my... yeah. Oh, X-Men Origins was the first review that I wrote on the blog, uh, yeah. and it was it was terrible. But one of the reasons that I started writing about film, or I got the idea into my head to actually start talking about film, was because 2008 was such a great year for cinema. Yeah, um, there will be blood. There will be blood, which was released in February in Bruges. Um, stuff like even say the Dark Knight and Wally in the summer. Um, wow. all, all this, all this really great stuff came out, and I mean even even smaller stuff like the the Will Ferrell stuff with uh, Step Brothers, which some might argue is his last truly great film, for example. But it was just it was a really really Cloverfield, for example, is is, a, is another one. Stranger than Fiction, kind yeah. of, but like not 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 as much as Step Brothers. Yeah. But I, I think that 2008 was a really, really phenomenal year. So I actually have memories of like going to the cinema, going to Savoy 1, sitting down and watching No Country for Old Men, and then a couple of weeks later going to see There Will Be Blood, and it just being an amazing experience. Incredible. Um, what about yourself? When did you see No Country for Old Men? I feel like it might have been... Um, I don't think I saw it in the cinema. I think I... I might have seen it with my, with my family. Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. Um... It's. Uh, I feel like it might have just been a movie night. Okay, cool. Well, I mean, I, I, I saw it that, as, uh, that way as well. I saw it at the cinema with my girlfriend at the time, and I saw it at home with the family afterwards as well. Yeah, it, it is possible it was, a, it was a movie night with a girlfriend. I'm not sure. Oh, it's a great, it's just a great film, I think, just to get that out there immediately. Like, it's, it's yeah. one, one of the defining and sort of most influential films, I would argue, of the past decade. Um, and I'd also argue that it, it's it's one of the generally regarded as one of the Coen brothers' masterpieces. Now I, I have very strong feelings about that uh, in general, but I think that No Country for Old Men is a movie that pretty much everybody points to, no matter what their taste in film, and sort of goes, "That is a very good film." Like I have people who do not care for the Coen brothers, right. people who think their work is overly idiosyncratic, that it's overly mannered. Um, look at No Country for Old Men and go, "Actually, that's a really really great film." People who like traditional westerns look at it and enjoy it. People who like deconstructions like it. People who like sort of prestige dramas like it. it it's a it's a just a phenomenal piece of work, I would argue. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's um pretty much. I suppose the, we 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 can we can say this at the outset, but it's it's pretty much perfect. It is. I, I mean, um, I uh, there's there's a problem that. Uh, Coen Brothers movies tend to have, and I think it, this is the third time in a row where this where 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 there's a problem that's that's a feature and not a bug, is that they're um, nihilistic and this is interesting. 
Dude. I would strongly disagree with that. And actually, I, I want to talk about it in the context of this film, right? And we can do it without without talking about spoilers, without talking about specifics, right? I think No Country for Old Men is an incredibly nihilistic film. Yeah. I think it's a very bleak film. I think it's a very cynical film about human nature. And this is... This I, is think, I think generally Coen Brothers movies are, though. It's, I it's, do not. I would reject that assumption. It, like, like um, the most most recent one... Um, Hail Caesar. Hail Caesar. Yeah, uh, was 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 for me a kind of an, an example of that. Is is that Coen Brothers movies at worst are um, a series of things happening, and 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 at best are an articulation of of why the other movies are just a whole lot of things happening, <laughs> because because they're like not not all of them, but. Um, to 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 a large extent, I think um, there's no real kind of point to them other than the, the, that there is no point. I would very very strongly disagree, and this is actually this is one of the things I want to talk about when we talk about No Country for Old Men. Yeah. Right. I think No Country for Old Men is a fantastic film. I think it's an amazing. Oh yeah. Film. We we've outlined it's pretty much perfect. I think you could make the argument that it is one of the best films that have been written and directed by Joel and Ethan Coen. Right. Right. I think that there's there's certainly the only other contenders for that title are probably The Big Lebowski and Fargo, right? I think that you could make a credible argument that No Country for Old Men is the best film that the Coen brothers have been involved in. And, and See, with, with The Big Lebowski, there's, 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 there's a large group of people who feel it's overrated. I don't think they can say the same for No Country for Old Men. All right. I do think there is a caveat with No Country for Old Men. It's the one that's coming now, which is I don't think it's a Coen brothers film. I don't think it, it has the same sense of, of authorship or identity. In the sense um, that it's a Cormac McCarthy. It's an adaptation of a Cormac McCarthy novel. I would argue it's more of a Cormac McCarthy film than it is a Coen Brothers film. Because like, you talk about the Coen Brothers having a nihilistic sensibility. I would very strongly disagree with that. And I think they would disagree with that as well. That's one of the criticisms that emerged in response to their early work. And it's something that they, they've commented on themselves and they've sort of satirized with um say the big lebowski like the big lebowski makes a point to include a bunch of german nihilists as characters in order to satirize and to spoof them and to have like at one point walter regards like say what you will about national the tenets of national socialism but at least it's an ethos in comparison to nihilism like i think that the code is their ethos because i i've 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 found that a tough nut to cry all right, I think the Coen brothers are... It's not enough to say, of course we have an ethos. Yeah. Just uh, we're don't just, ask what We're it just is. not going to tell you what it is. I actually think there's an argument to be made the Coen brothers have a very strong moral sensibility. I think the Coen brothers believe in a universe that is arranged according to moral imperatives and according to some moral goodness. I think that Fargo... Fa- hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Fargo is probably the... And this is, this is one of the things where you're talking about No Country for Old Men. The obvious comparison in the Coen Brothers catalogue is Fargo. Fargo is the flip side of the coin to No Country for Old Men because Fargo is arranged around the idea that Marge Gunderson is a fundamentally decent person. Right. And she's hardworking and she's sincere. And the fact that she's pregnant and the fact that she's... All of this doesn't matter because she still manages to solve the case in the end. And she still manages to put everything in its place. And I mean, even stuff like, say, Miller's Crossing, for example, is based on the idea that Tom is legitimately loyal, that he loves, that he loves the the gang boss, you know, that he sort of, he believes in that. That films like even, for example, True Grit is organized around the idea that Rooster can be redeemed and that justice, in some strange fashion, 
can be had for the murder of, of, of the young girl's parents. Like the Coen brothers, I would argue, believe in a very moralistic universe. They're, they're conservatives with a small c. I mean, well, even in Hail Caesar... talking about how, how No Country for Old Men isn't a Coen Brothers movie. True because Grit is even less a Coen Brothers movie. I would argue that True Grit fits much more comfortably. Also, when, when I say the film is, is more of a Cormac McCarthy film than a Coen Brothers film, I don't mean in, in the sense, in the literal sense of it being based upon a Cormac McCarthy book, because I think, like... Anybody who is familiar with the Coen brothers' sort of body of work will know that the, the brothers have a tendency to homage and, and reference and sort of nod towards and borrow from, from other filmmakers and, and from other writers, um, even when it's, it's not a direct adaptation. So, for example, obviously Miller's Crossing is heavily influenced by the work of uh, Dash Hammett, or The Big Lebowski is, is very much like it's, Raymond, it's a Raymond Chandler novel set in a bowling alley. Like, it, it's not that the Coen brothers sort of... Um, are, are you know aren't their own writing their own stories in their own style all the time although they very clearly are it, it's more that when i look at the no country for old men i see it reflecting the aesthetic the tone the mood and even the outlook that i associate more with cormac mccarthy than i do with uh, the coen brothers themselves so i think that there's an argument to be made that the outlook of the film is much more in keeping with say cormac mccarthy's novel the road or, or even say his screenplay for the counselor which which you know, in some ways could be seen as, as a weird dysfunctional sort of sequel or thematic follow-up to this film, then it, then it fits within sort of the, the Coen brothers' body of work. And I mean, I, I would argue even that, say, um, Burn After Reading, which is, is arguably similarly nihilistic in terms of, like, the closing scene in the film is basically every, everybody reflecting on the fact that nothing that happened made sense and there's no way of making it make sense. But even, even that sort of off-ball black comedy that was written at the same time as No Country for Old Men, with the brothers alternating their days writing one film and the other, I would argue that's much more in keeping with the style and the tone that I associate with the Coen brothers. And I mean, even in terms of, like, stylistic sensibility, like, I think that the, say that the casting, right, the Coen brothers have, like, a set group of, of cast members that they tend to rotate through. Like, for example, Steve Buscemi tends to pop up regularly. Jeff Bridges has been in a couple uh, John Tortoro, um, George Clooney, all these all these actors, these recurring ensembles. I think that No Country for All Men is striking because at the time it represented such a clear break. In the in the years since Josh Brolin has obviously been in Hail Caesar. But like you look at the, the characters that populate and the actors that populate No Country for All Men, it's striking that there's no Coen Brothers regulars in there. Like you look at the cast and there's nobody in there who's been in a Coen Brothers film before. Even in, in roles where you think that they might fit. Frances McDormand's another one, yeah. Yeah, for example, she tends to pop up in a lot yeah. as well. Like, I think that there's a you can draw a clear line and delineation between No Country for Old Men and the other films the Coen Brothers have made. To the point where I'm... I'm that's my, my one caveat with the film, is I'm not sure... It's a great film by the Coen Brothers. I'm not sure it's a great Coen Brothers film. The only other... Ironically enough, there are two other films that I would argue that the Coen Brothers make that are not great Coen Brothers films. First one is Intolerable Cruelty. Oh, yeah. I think everyone agrees on that. Yeah. And the second one is The Lady Killers. Um, and I think that those are examples where, where that works against them, where, where like they're clearly uncomfortable working with the material. But I think that with No Country for Old Men, it's just so nihilistic and so cynical that it reads almost like a rejection of, of kind of the, the, the moral principle and the ordering of the universe that they suggest in, in their earlier films. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I've always read the Coen brothers as conservative filmmakers with a small C who believe in, in concepts like human decency and that goodness is, is ultimately 
rewarded in some universal sense. Like the the world is full of horrible people who do horrible things. Yeah. But there is some ordering. There tends to be some ordering principle in the work that they do. I mean, even in in well, the Big Lebowski. You seem like a a, um, a serious man. Yeah. And in in the Big Lebowski, I don't know how. Well, I mean, it's serious man. I don't know man, how much yeah. you you can you. I mean, there there there's. Well, the Big Lebowski is a comedy. Yeah. Um. There, there's, there, there's people who like um, uh, Donny who 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 like, dies, die for no reason. It's. But at the end, stuff like Maud Lebowski ends up pregnant. Um, Bunny is found. Everything is relatively okay. Now Donny does die for no reason, but at the end, everything does go back. Lives are not necessarily destroyed, except for. Donnie who gets caught in the crossfire, which is a, a recurring Coen Brothers motif that characters do tend to get caught in, in, in crossfires in unfortunate situations. Like, there's this rippling sense of consequence. But I do think that there's a world of difference between that and, and what you get in No Country for Old Men. I think, like, No... Yeah, well, no they're very different movies. They are very different I films. I think, like, A Serious Man is... is, is is quite 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 grim as well yeah yeah and 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 that is this kind of um desperate search for purpose in a meaningless universe yeah Yeah. and i would argue that it's after this as well like i would argue that it's it's yeah but okay maybe the argument is that it was a clean break at the time but i do think that i think it's it's overly simplifying the way the coen brothers see the universe and the way that their films portray a universe as working to say that they're nihilistic in the same way that we we talked about this when we talked about quentin tarantino like Quentin Tarantino's films also have a very clear moral ordering principle. The only difference is that they're excessively violent. And I think the part of the categorization of like the Coen brothers and Tarantino as, as nihilists in the early 90s was because they tended to portray universes that were populated by violent, violent people who did violent, violent things that were portrayed in surprisingly graphic sort of ways. Yeah, there's, there's, um, there's a kind of a... Um... How how would you say? So this is this is one of those two fifty pauses. Yeah. There's a kind of a blasé attitude to kind of um tragedy and death and uh, yeah. that you find in, in Fargo and that you find in in, in this. And yeah. Well I think that in, in Fargo it's rejected through the character of and, Marge Gunderson. And actually in, in um in uh Big Lebowski well, even? Yeah, yeah. Well her like um Marge Gunderson uh doesn't exactly have like a a solemn um, a, 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 a approach to uh, life and death either. Well, she does, though. Like, she's portrayed consistently as a fundamentally decent person in a world that is chaotic, in a world that is cynical, in a world that is populated by selfish, greedy, and violent people. But in Fargo, I would argue she makes a difference. Like, in, in Fargo, she pieces it all together. She finds a way of making sense of what would otherwise seem senseless. And I think that's the difference between Fargo and No Country for Old Men, is that in No Country for Old Men, Tommy Lee Jones's character can't do that. He can't find a way to make this make sense. He talks about how he, he looks at the world outside and he can't take its measure anymore. And I think that's a fundamental that difference. That is not a new thing either. Oh, no, no. I, I really like that. But we'll, we'll probably talk about that when we get into this war zone. But, it's yeah. that thing from The Wire where Bodie is, is, is talking about how everybody says that. All yeah. the time. Oh, it's this new new generation, this new breeds, um, and it's like no, no, it has actually just ice cold these kids these days. Yeah, and the reality is that it has always been sort of that messed up and that horrific and that yeah, yeah. 
But uh, anyway, so with that in mind, Andrew, we, we both loved it. Yeah. Um, do you think that it belongs in the top 250 movies of all time? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I would I would definitely agree with that. As I said, I think it's one of the top three films the Coen brothers have directed and made. And I think that that alone would put it in the list. And I think it's something that's, that's hugely, like, it's still influential. Like, I still think that, like, say, without it, you wouldn't have films like, say, Hell or High Water last year. Which was very much, I think, in some ways, sort of, like, structured around the basic premise where you had... Like, Jeff Bridges' character was, in some ways, very much the same character that Tommy Lee Jones played here, for example. Yeah. And you had that sense of order. And it's kind of interesting in the way that, like, I talk, you know, for all that I say that it doesn't feel like a Coen Brothers film in some respects, it's become this massively influential, like, Coen Brothers film. Like, do you watch Fargo, the TV show? No. Okay, well, No Country for Old Men is arguably more of an influence on Fargo than Fargo itself, in terms of... The character played by Billy Bob Thornton, for example, in, in the first one is very clearly modeled on, on Shigora. Uh, but even stuff like the second season borrows a lot of its its visual language and a lot of its plot elements from No Country for Old Men to the point where I think when people think about the Coen brothers now, they think about this film, even if I would argue that it's not entirely indicative of their work. Well, I mean, they're at the point now where they can make whatever they want to make. Yeah. Um, people will go see it because it's because it's a Coen Brothers movie. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if if it's not indicative of, of, of who they are as filmmakers, then, then why are they making movies? All right, well, I, I would argue that, like, it was a breakthrough. Like, No Country for Old Men uh, was a breakthrough, basically, for the work that they, for their... For their filmography, like it was the film that won Best what? Picture. It was the film. It was the film that won them the Best Picture Oscar. It was also the film that won them the Best Director for Oscar. Fargo. They won the Screenplay Oscar for Fargo. What? Yep, they won the Best Screenplay for a uh, nomination for Fargo. Um, it was best film. It did not win Best Film. Fargo. Fargo was nominated for Best Picture and nominated for Best Director. It won Best Screenplay and Best Actress. They didn't sweep the board until No Country for Old Men. They won Best Picture. They won Best Director. Um, they also won Best really Adapted Screenplay again. No, it is, though. You I know, anyone can edit Wikipedia down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doubling down. You're really doubling down and committing to this. Andrew is convinced that the entire world forgot that the Coen brothers won the Oscar for Best Picture for Fargo. That's so strange. But I, I, think that's, I think that's an interesting thing about it, is that it, this has become a calling card film for them. Yeah. Like, this has become, when people think of the Coens, I would argue this is the film that really sort of broke them into, I think they were seen as idiosyncratic up until this point. I think that there was a point where when you said you liked the Coen brothers, it was a bit weird. I've talked to people who have talked about, like, when you mentioned the Coen brothers before No Country for Old Men, they're like, I remember trying to watch Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And it being a horrific experience. Right. You know, and I think that after No Country for Old Men, you go, well, look, you have uh, True Gr true grit for example you have like you know you have even a serious man or whatever but you have like uh yeah you have these these films that i think have arguably done better that have arguably sort of gone further you know well i don't know i i i, I, I thought i thought that um i haven't seen true grit um but i, I, I actually really like it i think it's massively underrated as coen brothers films go but I, I've, I've seen the, um, um, what's it called, the Hollywood one? Are you mean the, um, the Hail Caesar? Hail Caesar, yeah, I saw Hail Caesar. 
and a lot of people love that. I like, loved I, it a lot as well. I, th- I, th- I, th- I thought I thought it was it was it was good fun, but like entirely frivolous. Um, and and again, just kind of like there was there was there was a point where it's, uh, it kind of got out of the movie. I was like, what was that about? I don't know. And, and 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 it wasn't. It 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 certainly didn't seem like there there was something um, profound. Or... Yeah, yeah. I think it was. I think it was like it was basically a guy going through a spiritual crisis about his place in the universe over the course of twenty four hours and coming to realize that it it made sense. Like if you look at it as, on top of it being like just a great excuse to do stuff like recreate all these Hollywood sequences. I think that it has that small c conservative sense of purpose philosophy to it. Like. It has this idea where this fixer has this crisis of conscience about what he's doing, whether it means anything. He goes through 24 hours, and at the end of those 24 hours, he makes peace with the fact that he's happy doing what he does. That his life does have meaning, even if it doesn't have some sort of grand purpose. And in some ways, it's a rejection, I think, of of a serious man, which you really like, which is, is very much the opposite of man going through life, having a crisis, trying to figure out what it all means, and, and discovering that it means nothing. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't I I can't see how 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 um. So you accept this this <laughs> about a serious man? Yeah. I which is a film uh, again after No yeah. Country for Old Men. Okay. Like I would argue that No Country for Old Men was like a a dividing line in the Coen Brothers filmography. I would right. argue that it was a film, and I think that. It influenced their later work. I think that it, it's very clearly a lot of what the Coen Brothers produced now is in some way shaped or defined by this. Like, and I think that there you can draw a line between this work and the work they did in the nineties. I think that this is a very different animal from, say, Miller's Crossing or The Big Lebowski or Blood Simple or Barton Fink or any of those. Well, no, I, I think, I think a serious man still felt like like a Coen Brothers movie. Okay. All right, but anyway, we'll probably uh. We'll probably continue this discussion uh, in the spoiler zone, but I think we're both happy that it's on the two fifty. We're both yeah, think it's a fantastic yeah. film. I mean, in, um, in 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 terms of worldview, it doesn't really speak to me, but I, but I I think it's a very good articulation of that. Oh no, and it is, and I think it's it's a very it knows what it's saying and it says it very very well. Yeah, and I think it, you some might argue that it's it's a statement that other films have tried to repeat in the years since it was released. And I don't think they've done it quite as well. I don't think they've captured that sense of, and you, you described it quite well as nihilism, but that sense of like, yeah, of, of a world that makes no moral sense and, and a world in which there is no moral order. Yeah. Um, but anyway, with that in mind, will we segue gently into the spoiler zone? Let's. All right. Spoiler zone. So, Andrew, what was No Country for Old Men about for you? Um, It was about... <laughs> I I suppose I, I suppose we've. <laughs> it just occurs to me that that I'm the one who who's probably taught least and read least about movies, but it seems every week I'm the one who's asked, "What was it about for you?" And and I suppose we 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 we've talked a little about um, what I thought it was about, which is which is kind of nothing, and and the 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 the, the, the um. But that that's the point. It's. Like there, there, there's, there's, there's no, there's no sense in which, in which death is any real true loss, um, and and thus these these people are are are, are just born to die, in, yeah. in 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 a sense, and and that it's kind of, 
it's consequential in, 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 in terms of how that happens. Um, maybe it'll be an accident. Maybe someone would kill them. Um, well, there's that really great scene, which is, is the scene that's featured in the trailer, and the scene that I think a lot of people think about, and the scene that, particularly for Javier Bardem, has become a signature scene, which is the scene in which he's visiting with the um, shop owner. Yeah. And he's basically explaining, you know, this, you get the shop owner's life story where he inherited the shop from his wife's father, and how, you know, he sort of, every day he opens it and he closes and he goes to sleep about 9.30, and it's basically, you know, Javier Bardem is talking about how the the coin which he's about to toss to determine whether this man lives or dies has been traveling towards this moment in the same way that this guy has. That this man's life is effectively equivalent to this, you know, inanimate piece of metal that's that's been has no agency, has no purpose. Yeah. And that it will all come down to a simple coin toss based on a random combination of factors that brought Anton Chigurh into this shop at this moment in time to talk to this person. Um and that all of this comes down to random chance for Shigur, that he flips the coin and that he calls it. And on that, this man could lose everything. It's completely there, pointless. There's some, there's something kind of um, that, 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 that seems kind of insincere about Anton Seguro when, <laughs> when, 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 when he's, he's like he's, he's judging that this person isn't worthy to oh. live. It's like, oh, you, you married into this. And like, well, you don't, you don't know. Like, what could that man have said that would have impressed upon Anton Seguro <laughs> his worth to live. and value? Like, well, that, that's actually one of the things I like is that you get this sense of disdain, yeah, for Shigor, like the fact that he hates people. And it, there's a, like it happens. It seems again. like he would belittle anyone. I say, oh, so you're a concert pianist? What's that like? Yeah, you um, you, uh, you heal people with your hands. You're a surgeon. You save countless lives. <laughs> What does that actually mean in the grand yeah, scheme? Yeah, why? Yeah, why would you do such a thing? But there is there's this recurring sense of disdain that he has for everybody. Like when he has Carson Wells cornered in the hotel room, he's like, yeah. "You should accept your fate. There'd be more dignity in it." And you get the sense that if Carson Wells what the had f- accepted, the hell was it, that? Yeah, and if Carson Wells had, so, like, whoa, 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 what was that? Yeah, you should accept your fate. There, there would be more dignity in it. Was that was that my impersonation of him? <laughs> was that? Yeah, it was like, like a, a kind of a bane. Yeah, <laughs> you should accept your fate. There'd be more dignity in it. Um, sorry. Um, as far as Batman villains go, yeah, Anton Chigurh is not bane, but um, there is that same argument. Like that, the and then it happens repeatedly throughout. There's another scene where when he's talking about when he asks your man if if I were going to the airport, which airport would I go to, and he's like. You mean airstrip or airport? And it's like, airport. And you can just see on Shigura's face that he's like, I have to interact with this man for about another 30 seconds. Yeah. And it's causing me physical pain. Yeah. And as soon as he gets the answer, he's like, oh, by the way, can I take those chickens out of the truck? Why? No reason. Um, but there is this sense that Shigura has this disdain for the way that people interact. And even like when he goes and he murders Stephen Root. He's been hurt before. <laughs> yeah. But the way when he goes and he murders Stephen Root, he's like, it's almost like he's offended on like professional, like on a level of professional pride. He's like, you know, when when the accountant is is wondering, like they, when the accountant sort of standing there, he asks, you know, uh, why did he why did he give a tracker to the Mexicans? And he's like, well, he figured that the more people looking for the money, the better things would be. And uh, Sugar is like, ah, when you do a job, you pick the right tool. Um, and there's just this sense of incredible frustration. Like even when he, at the end he comes to. Uh, he comes to kill um, Llewellyn's sort of widow. 
Um, he basically he seems really ticked off about the fact that he has to do this. It's like, yeah. I promised your husband I'd do it. Oh, and the the funny thing about this is it's it's a kind of um, it's a kind of an existentialist move where 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 um, man gives himself kind of rules and um, a code and and and. And a purpose. Yeah. So Siguro, um, like all of the other characters, live in a world that doesn't make sense. Yeah. And he's he's given arbitrary kind of um, parameters to it. Yeah. So he said he he'll he'll kill her. So now he has to kill her. This is one of the things I actually find really interesting about this, right? Because there's a sense early in the film that that Shigur is is a nihilist to the point where like there's a point where he's confronting Carson Wells, and Wells is basically calling him an animal, and and Shigur's response is well. You know, you say there are rules. If the rules care about led... nothing, Wells. Yeah. If the rules led you here, then what good are the rules? Yeah. And there's this sense that in some way, Shigur has sort of like abandoned what society is, has sort of imposed upon him and decided to follow his own rules. But then he's also he's just as trapped by those. Yeah. Like he's just as bound by them. Um, and I think, in fairness, like it's actually interesting. You could argue that there's a certain extent to which the the Joker in say The Dark Knight in two thousand and eight has a similar sort of situation where he makes a big show of rejecting society's norms and the rules that society imposes and in breaking down these sort of social structures. But he's just as bound by his own pattern of behavior, by his own expectations, by his own rules that he imposes on himself. Right. Like, and I think that Shigur is, is fascinating as a, as a nihilist because he does seem, there are several points at which it seems like for all his protests about how useless rules are and how much like they inconvenience people and how much they lead to terrible decisions. He makes bad decisions based on his own rules. Like his decision to go and kill Carla Jean gets him in the car crash that for all we know could almost get him caught. Yeah. You know? Like if he had left her live, he wouldn't have been in a car accident and everything would have been fine. And yeah, that's, that's the thing about the car accident is it had nothing to, 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 to do with anything. Yeah. It, had it was, not... it was the, like, you, you don't have to be, um, involved in a in a drug deal that's gone bad that was just a, a convenient way of of, of, <laughs> of illustrating uh, it yeah of illustrating how like chaotic the, the world yeah, is yeah and how bloody and how violent yeah uh, but but you could just be um you don't you don't have to be Anton Segura you could have been anyone else who had went on a green light and yeah. got smashed by another car yeah and even then I like that when he takes the kid's shirt he still makes a point of offering the kid money for it because he believes that you should get paid for that. Yeah. Like, it's it's almost a point of principle. In the same way that, like, killing Carla Jean is a point of principle. Because he's like, well, you know, I told your husband um, that I would kill you. Now, even though I got the money, he didn't bring it to me. So I'm going to keep my word. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of bloody $100 bills. There really are. You kind of wonder what the circulation's like down in, in sort of Mexico and Texas. Yeah. Like, when you get 100 do you ever have to, like, clean it? Like... You what what you do is if you're giving if you're giving a bloody one hundred dollar bill to somebody you put it in a little jacket and put a put a bottle a tiny little bottle of beer in his hand and then <laughs> walk it over and it's like oh, oh my name's Bill um, um, I served in Vietnam yeah um, but I do like actually I I quite like that about it like that when uh, when Llewellyn is crossing over to Mexico completely covered in blood. Yeah. Right. He only decides to change jacket and to buy and to get a beer halfway across the bridge. 
Yeah. So presumably he walked across the US section of the border, leaving the country covered in blood. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't ask any questions. I, I would say, get the hell out of my country. I'd be just glad that guy's yeah. leaving. Yeah. That's why there were there were, were more questions when he was coming back. It's <laughs> like, we're hoping we wouldn't see you again, blood guy. Yeah, we remember you. We put up your picture. Yeah. Here's here's something interesting, right? Because the movie is... To Mexico with you. To Mexico with you. The way that Shigura interacts with other people, right? He clearly thinks of himself as superior to them, as, as above them, as existing beyond them, and sort of almost a Nietzschean sort of well, he superman. Is. Well, he, he is. Like, but... like the the um, he pretty much is. Like the, the 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 there there is something like in a world where where there are no rules. Yeah, and where 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 actually there there's um, no moral force imposing goodness on people. Yeah. He 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 is he is the the um, su- su- superior person because he's he's um, I suppose not um, not compelled by any um, false um, moralities that that that, pe- um, that people are following wrongly. Yeah, I mean, there's there's the really great recurring. <laughs> I'm not saying I support his. I'm just saying in in that in that world. Which um, is yeah, which the, is not the real world. No, which is not. I would, okay. I would, I would venture <laughs> I would to say. Suggest. Yeah, but, but I, it, it, yeah, I, I, I think it's difficult to kind of condemn somebody like that if, if you're, if, 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 if you know that the world that he's in conforms to those rules. Yeah. Well, I mean, I actually like. There's a recurring suggestion, a recurring imagery of like animals in the film, like yeah. the idea, and it, it's one of those very Cormac McCarthy themes, which is this idea that people are fundamentally animals, that they're basically meat. Most obviously in the fact that he carries around the gun that they use in abattoirs to, to yeah. pierce skulls and pull back. But there's even stuff like when he, at the very start he asks the guy to get out of the car and stand still. You then cut to, to Llewellyn basically staring down his scope at a deer, whispering, stand still, stand still. You have the use of, say, the dogs by the, the Mexicans, for example. You have like the, the this recurring idea that like people are effectively equivalent to livestock. Oh, when, there's, when the Mexicans, when, when the drug deal goes wrong... The guy says to Llewellyn, he asks him, Lobo, Lobo, wolf, wolf. Yeah. And there's a sense that in the world of, of No Country for Old Men, you could arguably break the characters down into like wolves and sheep. There are those who are predatory, those who sort of, who strike and take advantage of those who are less canny and, and less attuned to living in the world. And there are those who probably should stay within the lines that exist. And that Llewellyn's big sin... No, I think there's, 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 there's sheep dogs as well. Well, are the sheepdogs any use in this film? Do the no, sheepdogs no, actually they eventually also get eaten <laughs> by wolves. Or retire. Yeah. Um, or retire bitter and having nightmares about their fathers. But like, I think that's one of the interesting things about the film, is the idea... And it, it comes up time and again through the imagery of boundaries. Like, I, The Coen brothers are very, very good with visual motifs. Like, when when they, they're making films, they obviously decide at some point that this, this imagery is important, so we're going to keep coming back to it. So you have, like, even the establishing shots of, like, the Texas wilderness have are constantly framed in such a way that they're divided. So you have the telephone poles that form a boundary. You have the shot of the fence, you know, as as Tommy Lee Jones is narrating about his, his father. But you have even those great shots of the roads that are broken down, obviously, with the, the left and the right and the lines on them. As the, as the sort of lights stare out into the night space ahead. And there's this recurring sense that basically, if you want to live in this world, the best way to live in this world, and to be honest, it might not even protect you, but is to stay within those boundaries. And that Llewellyn, 
is punished or is, is basically he overestimates his own ability to survive when he decides to cross those lines. When he takes that money, um, he basically dooms himself, morally speaking. Although the film is so nihilistic that he doesn't doom himself by taking the money. He dooms himself by showing compassion and going back with water to help the dying guy in the car. Yeah. If he hadn't gone back with the water, he would have got home safe. That's how bleak the film's worldview is. Yeah. But I think there's this recurring sense that like Llewellyn thinks of himself as a wolf. He thinks of himself as a potential predator. Um, he like there's a great scene where he says like I'm I'm making you my business. You know this is my new my new thing. When when Shigura threatens his wife, um, and then he's dead in almost the next scene. Yeah, you know, it doesn't take long. No, it? it really doesn't take long. And and there's this sense that like while Shigura is hyper adapted to this world in which he exists, this this moral this completely amoral sort of nihilistic worldview, like. Llewellyn crosses over into it and doesn't appreciate the risk involved. He does fairly well. Um, he 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 survives longer than um, Woody Harrelson. Um, yeah, Carson, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like um, all those former Mexicans. The, the, <laughs> the, you mean those anonymous characters who don't really have any personality? The um, there's some very, very good dialogue in this movie. Fantastic. fantastic. Which is like, great after talking about, like, we, we did Terminator 2, which had not great dialogue. Yeah. The, 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 a lot of it is given to Tommy Lee Jones. Who is fantastic. Like, and, and, and to, um, um, uh, <laughs> oh gosh. Um, I, I keep, I, I like Woody Harrelson and Carson Wells. I like his dialogue. Yeah, yeah. Josh, Josh Brolin. As, as Llewellyn Moss. As Llewellyn Moss as well is, um, um, has has some has some really fantastic lines, but it, it's 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 mostly Tommy Lee Jones. I, I I think the um, but Tommy Jones has this great deadpan delivery. He's always had this great deadpan delivery. Absolutely, but the dialogue really really plays into it. Yeah, it's um, like there's a great scene where Carla Jean calls him and she's sort of conflicted about whether to inform him, and she asks about the story that he told her earlier, and she's like, um, Can, was it a true story? And he goes, what story? And he goes, ah. Well, it is true that it was a story. <laughs> It'll, what, what is it again? It'll do until the... Oh, the mess, yeah. So, it, what a mess we've got here. It's not the mess. It'll do till the mess gets here. Yeah, and the the um, when the discussion about um, the, 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 the Mexicans, and it's like, oh, they were. And it's like, are they not still Mexicans? When do you think they stopped? Yeah. Um, well, there is, there's this often, there's this recurring kind of question of how you talk about people. And it's interesting that you mentioned death, because you talked about death yeah. as soon as we came into this war zone. There's this recurring suggestion about, like, how you talk about people when they've died, like, when they cease to be. So do they cease to be who they are in the moment that they die? So, like, I think it happens with the Mexicans as well. But there's, there's moments where they're talking about, like, motivations and trying to ascribe and understand dead people as well. I'm trying to think of exact circumstances. There's the moment where when the DEA are down investigating the mass murder. Like Tommy Lee Jones or Sheriff Ed Bell's question is, are there any more dead bodies? It's like, no. Okay. Well then that's, that's grand. It's basically, they were dead. They're still dead. There's no need to, nothing has changed basically. Yeah. Nothing has changed in the fact that, that they've died. There is no other transformation that they go through. There's no. no other process through which they, they go, you know? No. Yeah, there's certainly the contention in a movie, anyway. Yeah, it is that basically you die and that's it. That's, yeah. That's the end of it. Actually, here's here's one of the things that's kind of interesting when we talk about death and how death is portrayed in No Country for Old Men. 
very few of the deaths of major characters are depicted. Oh, on we screen. don't see their faces. Yeah, yeah, when 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 he kills Woody Harrelson's character, we don't see him. Yeah. Um, you you see him shooting the chair, but the the chair blocks Woody Harrelson. You see yeah. the hand go limp. We don't see the we we don't see Llewellyn killed. Yeah, despite the fact that he's nominally the lead character in the movie. Yeah, which it is a fascinating sort of creative choice. Like it's a choice that sort of makes the deaths seem particularly small, almost yeah. particularly pointless. It's the fact that they're not big moments. Like it's like oh, did he die? Of course he did. Yeah, of course he did. That's that's the way this universe operates. Yeah. It's like, like, how did he die? It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. But there is. Like, there's never a big sort of, like, Mexican standoff hero moment in any of this. Well, it is a Mexican standoff. <laughs> in, the, in that there are Mexicans, and yeah, they're standing yeah. off with well, one another. What other criteria do you have? <laughs> yeah, for a Mexican standoff. But I, I do think there's something very, very sort of compelling about that, about the way that... And I like... I like that the three characters, the three primary characters in the film, so Sheriff Ed Bell, Llewellyn Moss, and Anton Chigurh, are largely, for the most part, isolated from one another. I'm not sure that any of them share individual scenes. Like, I think they're always sort of separated. I mean, obviously, Llewellyn Moss interacts with Anton Chigurh on the phone, and when Sheriff Bell visits the hotel room after Llewellyn's killed, there's the implication that Chigurh is there but leaves. Yeah. Um, but I think the film very cleverly keeps them isolated from one another in a way that underscores the sort of senselessness of this world. Yeah, and the loneliness. Um, yeah. Like, even in this story of these three overlapping lives, they never really directly overact. Their consequences ripple across, and the decisions that they make impact one another very profoundly. But they never... They never have a meaningful interaction, if that makes sense. Hmm. Like, I mean, even even um, Llewellyn Moss's conversations uh, with Anton Chigurh are threats. You know, they're they're basically threats and posturing over the phone. Yeah. There's there's never a moment where he sits down and has a man to man with him. Yeah, it's it's a um, it's a strange one that way. It's like, oh, I know you're you're in the you're in the um, you're in the hospital across the river. Yeah. yeah. And like, well, why wouldn't you come down and kill me? And it's like, you know, there's like, I hate Mexico. Well, <laughs> there, there is that, and then even, there's. <laughs> you think I hate Americans? I hate Mexicans even more. But again, that's a wonderful sort of disdainful thing where it's like, you will bring me the case and present it to my feet because otherwise, two uh, two million dollars is just not worth having. Yeah. If you have to get it yourself, then you're not worth two hundred two two million dollars. No. Out of curiosity, you raised this during the while we were watching the film, right? When Shigura kills oh, yeah, the management yeah, officials, yeah, yeah. yeah. The 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 um, the I I I maybe you had another question in mind, but what I want to know is, um, yeah, why? Because because he's he's originally called up to come and find the money. Yeah, by by the managerial types. Yeah, find the money, and he kills them both. Yeah, and it seems he's decided then he I'm going to my... take the money for myself. What does he want that money for? Yeah, what what, what is Anton Chigurh's like end game here? Yeah, and and if 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 like they're they're hiring him because they're like um, presumably does, he's does worked he, for them in the past. Yeah, does he come recommended? Yeah, he's <laughs> he's done lots of jobs for people where he has killed where them. he's killed them, <laughs> uh, but somewhere he hasn't. Um, and they speak very highly of him. Yeah, I mean, um, actually, he's a complete loose cannon. Um, 
you you do sort of wonder what his what his performance evaluations are like because Anton because even like Woody Harrelson is like yeah he's not a nice person and I work in this field yeah yeah um so you do sort of wonder how how he got the recommendation in the first place and be yeah what what is he planning to do with the two hundred million dollars what 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 line what line of 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 what? business are the 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 people in the big shiny building with the suits. Um, who, I actually who, really like that. I yeah, really... the, the, there's there's this kind of a thing where it's like um, it's Stephen Root and Woody Harrelson. Yeah, yeah, where 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 they're they're in presumably like Dallas, and yeah. and they're they're they they have like um, accountants and um, and, <laughs> and credit and, cards and yeah, expense accounts, and, like bank lamps. Yeah. and um, yeah, they, there's the point where Woody Harrelson jokes about having his parking validated. Yeah, but and there's a missing floor. They're 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 somehow involved <laughs> in in this like um, international drug trade. Yeah, with like black tar heroin and brown uh, Mexican yeah, stuff. Yeah, so so um um all of these uh, machine guns and yeah, then and 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 fighting dogs and it's like well we're trying to diversify some of our, our interests yeah yeah it's so spreading well i do i like well we're oil men <laughs> yeah but uh but uh, we got a bit on the side yeah but i do i like actually like that you you haven't watched fargo have you watched fargo um the show or the movie the show no not the show all right well the second season again we're talking about the influence of of, of no country for men, but it has a, a an illegal drug operation that is very clearly modeled on um on this organization here to the point where like there's a great scene where Brad Garrett shows up, you know the the brother from oh uh, yeah 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 Ra- from everyone loves Raymond yeah where yeah. he shows up and gives a PowerPoint slide presentation about their growth opportunities and stuff like that. It's very very good, but it, it's it's this sense that like for all that um. Tom Bell talks about, or Ed Bell talks about the disintegration of of the world around him, and the fact that you know it's it's people with green hair and 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 bones in their noses, or as his colleague says. But the idea that, in fact, actually, a lot of this is organized. A lot of this this sort of happens and has been built into these structures and these ways of oh, doing yeah. business. You it's know, not, it's it, it's it's never just one thing. Yeah. It's never like it's like the world is not the way it is because of people like Anton Chigurh. Yeah. Like Anton Chigurh is, is not the cause of the world making no sense. Yeah. Like he he makes more sense. Yes. He makes in in the context that the world is in. Yeah. And it's it's actually more I think that it it's it's these sort of like these businesses and these sort of corporate fronts and stuff like the idea that you have these massive international organizations that do exist to make sense of like drug smuggling and to to run these operations and train fighting dogs and to have these shootouts and stuff and that basically Shigor is a product of that environment rather than you know rather than a cause of it and one of the things I actually really like about No Country for Men and you alluded to it back at the very start of the podcast is the fact that the movie for all that it laments the state of the world and suggests the world is a nihilistic and uncaring place, it rejects the idea that the world is any worse than it once was. Yeah. Because, I mean, this is something you mentioned. And this, this is this is not now as well. So it's not saying, um, look at the terrible world we live in. It, it, it's saying, okay, this is 1979, 1980. Yeah. Um, and it's, 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 it's terrible. And yeah. it was terrible. And it's still terrible. And it will probably <laughs> continue to be terrible. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's, there's the sense that um, as much as Tommy Lee Jones' character, Ed Bell, would like to make sense 
of the world or to pretend the world made sense. It, it never did and it never will. And I mean, mm. like, I do like the suggestion that the violence in No Country for Women is in some ways uh, like a continuation of the violence that was done in Vietnam, even. Yeah. Like, there's a sense that uh, the character of the Welland Moss and the character of, of Kelton, uh, sorry, of, of Carlton, um, are basically, they're, they're both Vietnam veterans. And they sort of, they have that, even Llewellyn has that moment with the guy at the border where he says, yes, I served in Vietnam. But there's this sense that the, the world has always been violent. And there's a scene where um, Ed visits with, I think it's his uncle, maybe? Because it's not his father. His father's dead. But he's been dead for 13 years. It's not the same uncle who died in 1909, um, who has now come back as a wheelchair-bound ghost who raises cats. Although I would watch that show. Yeah. yeah. And and together they solve crime. um, It's that show with... um, with, um, What's his name? Um, Leary. Um, uh, Dennis Leary? Rescue Me? Rescue Me, yeah. (laughs) It's basically what it is. Yeah. But there's this discussion about how um, Ed's uncle had been killed by a bunch of, of Comanches, a bunch of Native Americans. Um, he'd been shot on his on the front porch yeah, and left to die. And the world had always been a violent place. And, and his, his uncle Ellis basically says... I believe the PC term is Red Indians. It's, it's come around again. It's got to circle back around. But I think his uncle Ellis makes the, the point that this country's always been tough on people. And there's a sense that it, it's part of... And part of me wonders if this is like American... Um, like, there's a great scene where Ellis also says, like, the world's not waiting on you, that's vanity. And I wonder if there's a sense of American vanity in the suggestion that, like, the American continent, the American country is particularly violent or particularly um, absurd as compared to other countries. Because it's not as if America or the United States is the only country with a history of violence and a history of senseless violence in the world. Like, I think that the world has always been hard on people. I think the world has, you know... I think the world is no less sensical than, or no more sensible. Uh, but I do, I do wonder if that's sort of like, if that is a very, like, a weird, a very precise form of American exceptionalism. Because obviously, like, the imagery in No Country for Old Men is, is the West. It's, it's the, the world that was, in American mythology, unconfined by boundaries and frontiers. It was the, the pressing forth of manifest destiny, the, the, the pursuit and the taming of the continent. Which, in those establishing shots, is, is first of all established as this wide-open prairie, and then almost immediately is sort of juxtaposed with these boundaries that have been constructed by men. So these wires that, that provide telephone communication, these fences that mark off land, these markings on the edge of roads that cut across the country. So I'm wondering if, in some ways, the idea that the American continent is particularly lawless and particularly violent is in some ways... I know perhaps a, an expression of, of ego and, and self-centeredness in, in some ways. Like I, I don't think that the American continent is any more or less violent than the European continent, for example. Yeah. Um, but I, I do like that idea, and I like that imagery. And I like, actually, the, the setting of the movie in 1980 is, is interesting, because it does give you that post-Vietnam thing. But, I mean, I think, in some ways, the film is perhaps a very 21st century film. Like, I think that the world and, and cinema and sort of one of the big recurring themes in modern modern cinema is nihilism. And I don't think it's ever been quite as well expressed as it is here. But this idea that the world is maybe a senseless place and that is terrifying. Yeah. Which I, I think it's been a recurring theme in horror since horror began, but it sort of crept into the mainstream in a number of different ways, in a number of different films. Like, I think that The Dark Knight, again, was a film that was released the same summer. Yeah. In which the Joker has a very similar worldview, and his his argument is that the world doesn't make sense, and that mankind imposes arbitrary rules 
on behavior and conduct in order to make it feel like the world makes sense when it doesn't. And I wonder if that's like the reason that that's such a popular theme in 21st century pop culture, particularly American 21st century pop culture, is perhaps as a response to something like, say, 9-11, September 11th, the, the attacks. Because I think that you could argue that the 90s were a period of relative peace and prosperity for the United States. There were no major international wars fought. The Cold War was over. Interventions in Iraq and interventions in uh, Kosovo were mostly done using sorry, by aerial bombardment. The, the intervention in Haiti was, was relatively small. The, the economy was stable. There was peace and prosperity. And then basically, like, was it um, the Francis uh, Fukuyama suggested that, you know, it was the end of history. Liberal democracy had emerged triumphant. I think that the 90s were seen as a period of relative stability. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere in September 2001, like all of a sudden that the Twin Towers were destroyed and the world suddenly didn't make sense to people or didn't make sense, I think, to certain Americans or to certain you know, to this idea of like the West having won the Cold War and like all the great wars have been fought and won. And this mm. idea that you suddenly find yourself in an existential struggle with terrorists who are willing to kill themselves. Darren, there's, there's a simple answer to these questions. It's uh, family. That's, That's the Fast <laughs> and Furious is yeah, the, the meaning <laughs> posited by contemporary <laughs> movies. It's um, like, you know what we have? Family, and, family. That, and that's enough. Yeah. Um, although it's clearly not enough for Carla Jean, who loses her husband and her mother, and possibly her life. Yeah. Uh, by the but very not, end, not literal family. <laughs> not li- no, no, metaphorical family. But I do think I wonder if, like, you could argue that No Country for Old Men is in some ways like a, a response to that, in some ways dealing with that idea that that the world doesn't make sense. That that's in some ways informed by like the war on terror and by like the reaction to terrorism, because the reaction to modern like terrorism is fantastically in some ways overblown for the actual impact that it has like right. people are terrified by terrorism and, and and the tendency like terrorism people are terrified by terrorism well it's almost as if that were the point and that were why it were named but the argument that like we know that terrorism occurs for reasons that's rooted in, in in social and historical factors and there are reasons why people do what they do but I think to a lot of people who look at stuff like suicide bombing, who look at stuff like the July uh, bombings in, in London, who look at stuff like the 9-11 attacks, who look at stuff like even the arbitrary sort of shooting sprees and stuff like that, that terrorism seems to be violence without purpose beyond instilling fear. And it, it, it makes the world seem less safe. And even though proportionally you're statistically less likely to die in a terrorist attack than you are to be killed by your own furniture, people are still disproportionately afraid of this idea of the world, basically, of, of being victimized by somebody motivated by something they can't understand. That the world that they've built can be torn down in an instant um, by somebody who is unknown or unknowable to them. Yeah. And that there is no moral order. And I wonder if, like, no the nihilism of no country problem that we talked about is in some ways a response to that. Well, I mean, there, there, but there, there is um, a perverse... Uh, mor- moral um, order, um, however mistaken, about um, about terrorism. Oh no it's, no no! Yeah, I know I know I know. Um, and and but I think and I I think I think it's possible for people to see to see the 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 kind of the reasons and whether whether the proportioned reasons are the actual reasons behind um, the, yeah. the, the, the behind terrorism. I I think I think that's definitely true, but I think. 
in a in the popular culture in a broader sense like i mean we understand it because we read about it and we understand say some of the history of, of the middle east in terms of like um al-qaeda and isis and all this sort of stuff like but i think in terms of like as a visceral gut reaction to having grown up in the 90s when everything was safe and secure and well, then all of a sudden it's like how, how senseless yeah discovering that you know that it is that it feels senseless to you even if it even if it has a history and even if it has a context because that context isn't like taught or discussed in schools, for example. Right. You know, it's something that you have to read up about, you know? It's still like, you still get the sensationalist headlines that describe like Osama bin Laden as evil, and he was evil, to be honest, but that describe him as evil as if like he's the embodiment of evil that emerged from a vacuum. Yeah. You know? That he has no purpose for what he's doing, like no reason or no motivation. Darren. I know, but you, you, you know what I'm saying. You get what I'm saying. Like, I, I think it's a gut reaction rather than anything logical or rational. Am I reading too much into it? I'm not sure. I I I think I think it's difficult to to um to 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 truly paint it one way um or the other. I think I I I think there's 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 nuances to it. Okay. You 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 can I think you can um you you can draw many characterizations from from the response to something like this because I don't think it's 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 such an homogenous or a okay. kind of um. Uh, generalizable thing right because i do think that like this emerged at a time when hollywood had begun properly responding to the events of 9-11 like i think that united 93 was around the same time as like 2005 2006 um but you had so you sort of see projects that had been like produced and had been written by people who had like experience to sort of live through the aftermath of 9-11 rather than say projects that were in various stages of development like i think you could see a pop culture responding and engaging with it. Is this the second episode in a row where we've talked about nine eleven? No, or... we talked about it on uh, two thousand one. We didn't talk about nine eleven. Ah, America. okay. Well, no, I, I think, but I do think that it is a zeitgeist shaping moment. I think it's a cultural moment. All same. I know is that um, uh, jet fuel doesn't melt steel beams. Nine um, eleven was an inside joke. Wake uh, up, sheeple. Yeah. Um. What do you think of the portrayals of Texans in uh, No Country for Old Men? Actually, because well, this is something that struck me. This having is... having never been to Texas, I couldn't really um, attest to the accuracy or inaccuracy of. Um, uh, I I did like the kind of um, there was a southern feel about some of it. I know that the desert is quite different to kind of like to to the south, say Alabama. But there was, there was there was part of it where. There were some kind of ele- elements of the movie where I was reminded of what brief kind of experience I've had while visiting places like Savannah, Georgia, which is very kind of like the complete other side of the country. But there, 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 there was something sort of familiar about about part of it there that I that I that I kind of liked. It felt um, it felt kind of authentic, me um, Americana. I liked the recurring sense that like these people had no idea what they'd been caught up in. And it's kind of interesting because it's sort of in some ways like it's the way that the Minnesotans uh, behave in Fargo. Right. Like there's a recurring sense that the characters who encounter Shigur and even the characters who encounter Llewellyn, for example, have no real sense of what they're interacting with, have no real sense of 
like what they're coming face to face with like there's the the scene where Shigura's talking to the guy in the shop for example and the guy in the shop doesn't seem to get that Shigura is threatening him even when he's threatening him like there's a great dialogue where he's like uh, what time you go to bed uh, no about 9 30 what say i come back then why, why would you come back then the shop will be closed um that sort of thing or even the bit where when he goes into yeah. the, the the lobby at the trailer park and he asks you know where is uh where is the well and work and she's like i can't give that information to you he's like yeah. where does he work i i told you i can't tell you uh, well yeah it should be more like welcome to texas you look like a trained killer are, <laughs> are you working for the tijuana cartel or for we, them them company up in dallas we we get a lot of them coming through uh, but no, I, I like I like the sense that there's a clear divide between the world in which Shigure operates and the world in which these people live. There's a live. school down the street if you want to go kill some people. But I, I do like that there is a clear divide, though. Like there's a, there's a sense that like the world is populated by people who haven't transgressed in the way that Llewellyn has, and most of them die horribly by coming in contact with him. Like you want to talk about the bleak nihilism of the film? The guy who pulls over to help Llewellyn drive away gets shot in the neck. Yeah. Like, there's a sense that being a bystander, even being a bystander in this world, is horribly... Like, there's all these... <laughs> that guy was probably stupid. There's all these cars that get pulled over uh, by Shigur. Like, there's the point where he asks your man which airport would he go to. And, like, all this guy is trying to do is jumpstart his car. There's yeah. a sense that it would be easier for Shigur to let this guy jumpstart his car than it would be to murder him, take all the chicken pallets out of the car clean the feathers out of the back of the truck and continue on his way like, yeah it's, it's um we found we found a man uh without his car on the side of the road um well, that's that guy who works with the the the, the chickens the, the chickens yeah why does he appear to have been driving an suv uh, yeah who am i to ask but there is there's this this weird sense that like Shigur kills people for the sake of killing them like the, that there's no real necessity to a lot of his violence I don't think you appreciate like how 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 like the 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 enjoyment that 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 Anton Seguro gets out of it. When you see when you see him choking the police officer at, at the very at, start, at the very, yeah, you you get to actually see the kind of joy in 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 his eyes that you don't get to see for for for. Oh, by the way, he's a very bad. Um, uh, technique yeah because because um he has his legs up at the at the person's um kind of shoulders with it with it, uh, um and is, is 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 choking him and the person's legs are free to 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 flail um uh, as much yeah but it gives you that he great could, image he, of he the scraping on could the have ground turned he could have turned around, or there's 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 no sense in which um, um, Suguru is 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 controlling. They, they, it could so easily have gone there, horribly wrong. Yeah, there's nothing really stopping this um, uh, police sheriff or um, police officer from from just turning in the other direction to which he's been choked and. Uh, there's, making there's, it all awkward yeah there's nothing holding him in place so this is how and this is like andrew's first thought about watching the film by the way yeah but um i do think that actually to be fair bardem is is phenomenal yeah no bardem, bardem is fantastic this was really the role that sort of made him in terms of english language films i believe <laughs> no 
Um, this is no, sort of like I, a signature I, I just find it funny because it's like English language films. It's like well, he had he, a really long and... He doesn't really <laughs> s- speak English so much in... In, <laughs> in, in this film. Yeah, yeah. Um, nor nor does he particularly um, speak English with any particular Elan uh, in, in, in any... Which is fine, by the way. Yeah. Like, like I don't... I don't, well, I, don't speak, I don't speak very much Spanish, but yeah. the... No, the... the I think the take with me is is kind of like an English language movie. The the yeah he he's 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 fantastic. Oh, he is. There's the great story about when the Coen brothers decided what he was going to look like. They took him to hair and makeup. Yeah. And when he got his hair cut to look like Shigur, his response was, "Well, I'm not getting laid for the next two years." <laughs> <laughs> Which is difficult when you're heavy or bad down. Yeah, it takes a lot of work to do yeah. that off. The Coen brothers should be really really proud of yeah. what they've done. But I mean, I think to an extent you could argue that Bardem has in some ways been typecast after that, to the point where in a lot of his films he's basically playing variations. Upon oh yeah, him. he's villain. He, yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, but I mean, I guess with the exception of uh, Vicky Cristina Barcelona. Which was another film actually released in 2008 when we're talking about great 2008 films. Oh, is that a great film? People seem to like it. I, I much prefer... Um, I, I much prefer... I can't the... stand it. It's such yeah. pretentious nonsense. Like, the the the. I don't mind when 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 a movie is clever, but when 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 it when it when, when it, it thinks it's clever, when it thinks it's clever and isn't, it's like, um, <laughs> it's like um, what is it? Uh, Vicky's studying Chinese, <laughs> and she says, "He's like, oh, you're studying Chinese." It's like, yes. And it's like, say some Chinese. Uh, Ni hao. That's it. She knows how to say hello. <laughs> It's a stupid movie. And it, have like, you like, that other like, late stage Woody Allen films? Americans kind of like <laughs> Americans and, and, and their visit visit to Europe to to to. You're you're complaining that a Woody Allen film is about self absorbed people. Oh yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> Lord knows none of the other Woody Allen films are about self absorbed people. No. no. <laughs> uh, but Bardem, Bardem is great. And uh, what about so anything else sort of jump out at you? I actually really yeah. like Brolin. I actually really, really like Brolin. Really like Brolin a lot. I don't want to jump over Brolin, um, but in case in case we miss her... Kelly uh, MacDonald. Kelly MacDonald, yeah, it's fantastic. It's great. Well, this is probably one of the films that I think established her to American uh, yeah. writers and, and audiences. She's in uh, Boardwalk Empire as well, yeah. isn't she? Yeah. She did... Well, obviously, before this, she'd done Trainspotting. Yeah. Which, which sort of made an impression, I think, on a lot of, lot of people in the British Isles. Yeah. Um, and I think American people watching it with subtitles. Yeah. Because <laughs> like, um, uh, <laughs> it, it was, it was one of the, the signature movies of like the, the British New Wave in the 90s, was or British New Wave cinema in the 90s was train spotting. But yeah, the, this thick sort of Glaswegian sort of uh, conversation. And she did intermission as well in Ireland. Yes. Despite the, you know, despite the fact that the Scottish accent is quite different from the Irish accent to, you know, Irish and Scottish people. Apparently, it worked quite well for everybody else. Yeah. But this was really, I think, what established her in the States. Because, as you pointed out, she did go on to do Boardwalk Empire for the better part of five years. Yeah. Um, which And she's great. She is actually, she's really, really good. And she's really good and in she's this. she's really good in this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She, 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 she has this kind of, um, this great kind of quality to her. And I know that's a very vague way of putting <laughs> it. But, but I mean, there, there is. And I think her interactions with Llewellyn as well are great. Yeah, like yeah. even the the early establishing scene, and like it's a it's a an adaptation of a Cormac McCarthy novel, right? Which means that 
generally dialogue is sparse and description right. is sparse and exposition is also quite sparse but the the actors and the directors do a great deal with that yeah so like there's the great scene where um Llewellyn comes home after getting the two million dollars and the gun and she's like where'd you get that gun it's like the get in place <laughs> um and and obviously the the nice sort of thematic follow-up where she asks what he paid for it um which is is kind of like setting up the idea that there will be consequences for what he's done yeah um the idea that in even in this amoral universe that that he will face the consequences for having taken it but even stuff like the um you mentioned this as well Llewellyn's tendency to think out loud i love that but and it's great because he doesn't think out loud in the sense of like provide narration or exposition he just thinks out loud in the sense of he articulates a sentence fragment of a feeling yeah like he'll say that's not right and sit up in bed for example or oh hell no and sit up in bed like the moment where he decides to go back and bring water to the guy he's lying awake and he just goes ah screw it yeah um and you can tell immediately, like, Brolin's so good that you can tell immediately what the decision is that he's made. Yeah. And he's also aware of the fact he's that it... He's like, um... <laughs> what is it? This, this, um... This man's, um... He's set down somewhere. Somewhere shade. And and and, and, and then goes and finds him. Like, like um... Yeah, and, 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 and it feels like that's just a part of this guy's character. Yeah. You know, because they, they, they've established it. He talks to himself. Yeah, and it, it does really, really well. And you can... But in a kind of a, 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 um, a laconic manner. Like, like, yeah. Yeah. It's not as if he's he's talking purple prose. He's not like he's not like Sarah Connor in, in Terminator 2, to give an example. Am I using laconic in the right sense in, in, in terms of like Spartan? Yes. Yes, gross. Um, But I do think they're sort of lazy almost. Well, maybe I'm not using it in the in the in the in the right context then, if 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 that's what it means. But uh, I do think Brolin's Brolin's great, and actually, to be fair, there's a sense that the the casting of him as say Eddie Mannix in um was it Inhale Caesar? Yeah, is in some ways almost an apology for his his work as Llewellyn here, in that like after Llewellyn, Llewellyn is a very strong silent type who doesn't say that much over the course of the film. Yeah, whereas Eddie Mannix talks you know a mile a minute. Yeah, um, and I think that there's something sort of interesting. There's a credit to Brolin that he can do both so well. I think. Yeah, I think I think he's um, he's very good in Inherent Vice. Um, oh, Inherent Vice is really great. I actually really really love Inherent Vice. It's it's kind of mumblecore, isn't it? In a weird way, but I mean, I I would argue it's one of my favorite uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. There are films. bits of this that are kind of <laughs> mumbly. I I well no, I was talking about the movie, but yes, okay. the the <laughs> podcast the as well. One. They, yeah. There were bits of this movie where I had to ask you, what did he say? There was a lot of that, but that's the thick Texas accent. Which, again, is, again, it's another detail that almost reminds me of Fargo, because you have the same thing in Fargo with the Minnesotan accent, where you have, like, there's a sense that what they're saying is not quite as important as, like, how they're saying it. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of... Di- some of the dialogue in it is quite extraneous. For example, there's the... Um, i trying to think what it was. Uh, never mind. Obviously, it was so extraneous that Darren <laughs> forgot what it was. Um, another thing, actually, I noticed this time was around. It, you, what was it? You ride and... You ride and... ...was one of those as well. You um, ride and... Um, which is referring to sitting between the driver and the passenger in the front of a pickup truck. Which I did not know. But oh. now I do. I feel like this. I feel like this movie has enriched my understanding of, of many, many things, including the moral yeah. order of the universe. No one's ever like... 
<laughs> shotgun. Um, I did like his silent shotgun, by the way. I did like yeah. Chigurh's silent shotgun. Is that a thing? I, I don't guess, know. I, I, like, I, think, I guess it is. Um, people are, yeah, overly... Um, Actually, I think I had it in a GTA. <laughs> so maybe probably as a nod to this film, though, yeah, given that GTA yeah. tends to pop up. It tends to take things from movies. Uh, in GTA Five, there's a drug deal gone wrong in the style of No Country for Old Men. Well, that would be that then, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because so you, you, go, you go pick up the money and then all of a sudden um, in the these middle. other people arrive. Yeah. yeah. But it is, I mean, and it is, it casts a very long shadow. Here's something I noticed, actually, something I'm thinking about. When you're thinking about, like, Coen Brother Connections, there's a lot of boot imagery in this film. Like, the Coen Brothers tend to, in some cases, have imagery around, say, clothing. Yeah. So, for example, in uh, Miller's Crossing, the hat is used to symbolize like the higher functions, like the the thinking or the the sort of like when Tom Hagen has his hat on, he's able to think. When he takes it off, he makes sort of emotional decisions. His name's Tom Hagen. Uh, it's a nod to The Godfather. Yeah. yeah. Jeez. <laughs> you, you only just picked that up. Oh well, it's been a while since I've seen um, uh, Miller's Crossing. I guess. So it is. It was. It was Tom Regan rather than Tom Hagen. Apologies. But, um, but I suppose it, 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 if 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 you give the R a kind of a Spanish, uh, or, or, <laughs> pronounce it like a or, Spanish. No, J. sorry, like a um, like a Portuguese R. Um, oh, thank you so, very much, Andrew. Hey, yeah. that, was, that was a very nice, very nice yeah. save there. Um, but there is this recurring imagery, like if 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 Miller's Crossing is about hats, then um, you know the No Country for Old Men has this recurring boot imagery, which I find fascinating. So, for example, there's there's the scene where um everybody tends to take off their boots. So, like, when Shigura's going killing, he takes off his boots to sort of sneak around in his socks so he can surprise the Mexicans in the room looking for the cash. Yeah. Or, uh, for example, when Llewellyn's going swimming with the dog, he makes a point to take off his boots before he, he does it. Like, by the way, I like the way that I describe it as swimming with the dog, as if it was a relaxing <laughs> and playful experience for both of them. Um, but even later on in the movie, there's a scene where when Shigura has killed uh, Woody Harrelson's character and when he's talking to Llewellyn on the phone, there's a lovely shot of his boots on the ground as the camera sort of pans to the blood sort of seeping over. And he just lifts his boots off the ground and sort of puts them on the bed. And yeah, I wonder, I wonder is, is, does the Cormac McCarthy novel write uh, Anton Segura, who, do, who doesn't sound very Texan, but is he written as a Texan? Because he, he has the same kind of... Cowboy um, boots. Yeah, he has the same, and, and, and the same regard for those cowboy <laughs> boots. It's like... Um, I'm not wearing these while I'm going sneaking. One of two things I need is my cowboy boots and my 10-gallon hat. Um, but I do, I do like that. I wonder... What do you think that means? My gun. Get your goddamn hands off my gun. Um, but it's okay, because I have my abattoir material. Yeah, what that's you... such a unwieldy thing to be <laughs> carrying around. Um, <laughs> it's almost like he picked it for thematic purposes. Yeah, you ready it's to like... go? Hold on. Let me get my, thema let me get yeah, my thematically appropriate... Yeah, which takes two hands <laughs> yeah, to wheel. operate. And which is immediately remarkable to anybody who pulls me over. Yeah. Um, but What's I... that? You got that... Emphysema thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, you know that mystery disease that we can't figure out what's causing it? 
emphysema. <laughs> um, he seems to have one of those breathing apparatuses for that. But I, I he doesn't do, smoke cigarettes like most people with emphysema. I'm not saying smoking causes <laughs> emphysema or nothing. But I do like I do like the idea of Shigur having to make that sort of forced small talk where he's like, "Officer, what is this?" And it's like, I like the idea of Shigura having to lie and pretending to have emphysema, if only because it would offend him so very much. Yeah. Um, but I, what do you think the boot symmetry is about? Actually, out of curiosity. I think um, the the that's um, the boot is America. Which is um, a, um, a vagina. Um, I, I don't know what the boot. Okay. Um, well, no, what, I, what, what, what do you think the, the boot symbolizes? Well, I, I have a funny feeling that <laughs> that you have an opinion. <laughs> that this somehow that this was set up for me to get to this opinion. I don't know. I was actually thinking about. Well, I think that if the hat represents sort of Tom Regan's higher thinking, then perhaps the boot represents something more primal and something more primordial. Like the idea, like you, you take off the boot as an article of clothing when you're doing something animalistic. So when, for example, he, you know, he's going swimming in the water with the dog or when, for example, Ashigura is going to kill these people. Like he takes off the shoes, almost like taking off like some article of, you know, personality or some article of humanity. And like when he's sitting there with the blood oozing from Woody Harrelson's character, he lifts them up off the ground so that they're not contaminated by it. Like there's some he, sense he arrives back in Texas, um, Llewellyn, um, with no clothes but his boots. Yeah. There's an interesting thing. So is that is he still holding on to? Uh, <laughs> is he still holding on to that part of himself? Is he still holding on to that civility? Like, is this this idea that he's crossed the line, but he's not ready to see it through to its conclusion? I think I I. I Am I reading too much into this, Andrew? I yes. <laughs> short, short, short answer yes. Long answer no with a but. Um, uh, no doubt. <laughs> Not at all. Another thing I, I really like about No Country for Old Men, and it's something that I, I don't really see sort of discussed that much when talking about it, is the sense and, and the attention that it pays to like procedural uh, details, to, to the mechanics of, of what's going on. And by that I mean that the, the camera... And the editing tends to follow characters through scenes that are, are mostly silent and mostly intuitive. They're not very heavy on like verbal exposition, but which explain very basic things about how, how the world works and how these characters sort of interact with the world. So, for example, like after um, Shigur attacks Llewellyn at, at the hotel and after Llewellyn sort of shoots him and wounds him, like there's an extended sequence where the audience gets to see Shigur sort of basically like peel figure out how he's going to treat the gunshot wound in his pants so he gets to you know he goes to the pharmacy but he needs to create a distraction so he he sets he you know lights a, a cotton ball and a piece of cloth in a, in a gas tank in order to cause an explosion that will distract everybody in the pharmacy so he can steal the anesthetic and he can steal all the medical equipment that he will need then to conduct the surgery on himself which he, he does by cutting his pants off and laying down a plastic sheet there's a lot of attention devoted to little details like that when other films, for example, would just cut around it. Like, you would assume in, in most films, like, after Llewellyn sort of shoots and uh, shoots Shigur and fails to kill him, like, you would assume that, that Shigur is going to turn up again and he'll maybe maybe have a bandage, but he, he won't be that seriously hurt. I like that No Country for Men goes the effort of explaining how that is. It sort of reminds me a bit of what we were talking about when we were talking about 2001 Space Odyssey, how that felt almost like a travelogue. 
for a fictional feature for future that didn't exist with all the attention that it paid to signage and to mechanics and, and to working and stuff like that. But um, it, it really, really is. It, it's sort of, uh, it's very, very striking. Um, and it, it does remind me, it's sort of one of the, the influences of the film, perhaps, in, in the way that it sort of informs the way that a lot of television storytelling takes place now. Because I think modern television storytelling owes a lot to prestige cinema at the turn of the millennium. And I think it owes a lot to No Country for Old Men in particular. I think that, say, Vince Gilligan's work on Breaking Bad and his work with Peter Gould on, say, Better Call Saul is particularly indebted to this style of visual storytelling, where, for example, you have these montages and these sequences and these extended, like, 10-minute or act-long sequences within episodes that go to great lengths to detail exactly how characters do stuff that you would consider taken for granted in another narrative. So, for example, Mike finding the tracker on his car, which he does by stripping the car down, basically, and peeling off the tires, and by dismantling the car and then reverse-engineering it to go back, which is, is, is very clever, but which is the kind of thing that in earlier films and in sort of in television in, in say the 80s and 90s you simply wouldn't have had the time to devote to because you would assume the audience wouldn't have the attention for i think there's something very interesting and very sort of telling and very influential in the way that no country for men sort of luxuriates in that detail it looked fantastic and uh, roger had... deakins by the way yeah yeah, yeah our, our good friend roger deakins of um uh, the prisoners, prisoners uh, that that we had a lot of good things to say about the cinematography in that yeah um some some great performances some fantastic dialogue um as i said pretty much a perfect movie very um nihilistic worldview that doesn't really i suppose um i like uh, the fact that you're the more cynical of the pair of us and you're, you're the one who's arguing that this does not reflect the real world and i'm kind of like oh, i can kind of see it i don't know if um i don't know how accurate it is to 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 say that I'm the 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 more single, cynical of 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 the pair of us. I, I don't know. I I I wouldn't. Okay. I wouldn't accuse. I certainly wouldn't accuse you of being cynical. But I I um I don't I don't see myself as okay. <laughs> particularly cynical. Thank you, Andrew. Um, and I'm getting some Shigura-level disdain here from Andrew. So with that in mind, let's take a look at where it is on the list and just sort of, like, what's surrounded by it and where we think, like, should it be higher or lower, basically? So it's around about 171, right? Which right. Is let's, in... see, let's see what I recognize around it. I don't actually recognize that many. Finding Nemo is, a par- um, is, is, is above it. Um, so is the thing and the sixth sense gone with the wind and Fargo and so the Big Lebowski. I, so I've seen Sixth Sense, Fargo, the Big Lebowski. And actually... I noticed, yeah, it's 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 quite close to some um, some other Coen Brothers movies, yeah. and it's below um, below them as well, below Fargo and below the Big Lebowski. Which is actually interesting because that's how I would argue they should rank. Right. I would, I would argue that like you know in terms of quality, it's the Big Lebowski, Fargo, so, so what, and then what's, um, what's it ahead of? And like, how do we feel about that? I guess. What's well, ahead of There Will Be Blood, actually, which is the oh, one wow. that I constantly think about, because that was the other film in the 2008 sort of best picture race. I, I liked There Will Be Blood. I loved There Will Be Blood. I preferred No Country for Old Men, but I loved There Will Be Blood. I Yeah, I've, I, I'd have to see it again. Like, I, I really, really liked um, No Country for Old Men as a movie. Um, but I, I would, I would, I, I'd say it would be difficult for me to, to put one ahead of the other. When I saw There Will Be Blood down there, I was like, oh, that should be ahead of um, 
No Country for Old Men. Um, uh, even though I've just seen No Country for Old Men. And... Well, there Will Be Blood is sort of the the contrarian pick. Like it, it's the pick for people who don't don't think No Country for Old Men should have won the Best Picture Oscar. Like it's, right. It's like it's and to be fair, it's a great film. It's a really really great film. I'm not sure it's Anderson's best. Like I'd argue The Master is better, and I'd argue even more recently Inherent Vice is probably not quite as good, but it's almost as good. It's got some Paul Dano as well. It's got double the Paul Dano for your money. Yeah. You know that he was actually originally cast as the brother who sells out. Yeah, Mm. and then he was recast as the preacher because he was so good. Yeah. Which is is phenomenal. Um, All right then. So with that in mind, I think the only thing left to do is to pick the movie that we're going to talk about next week. Excellent. So Andrew, would you do me a favor and pick from the list? Random number generator. Twist, twist, twist. Show us a movie on the list. Oh my god. <laughs> what are the odds of that? We have landed on number 249, which is great because there's You know a... what the odds are of that, by the way. <laughs> one in 250 or one in 350. But um, that means that oh my goodness. we're going to talk about one of the movies that is constantly dropping into and out of the list. Like Anne, Once Upon a Time in India. I've been, I've been looking forward to... Landing on an Indian movie, actually. Yeah, yeah. Because we, we've seen a lot of them, and we talked a lot about how the list has changed and evolved over time. And one of those ways that it's changed and evolved has been including more Turkish and more Indian films. Yeah. And basically... Um, so this will give us a chance to 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 take our... Um, uh, much broaden our, our palette, almost. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. And and hopefully, hopefully we're able to, 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 to appreciate these movies. But uh, realistically, it's it's number two forty nine. So if we don't like it, it's possible. That... It's not. It's just not that good. Yeah. Um, all right then. With that in mind, let's take a look at the trailer for Lagan Once Upon a Time in India. You have agreed to cancel the tax of the farmers in Champaner if they beat you in a game of cricket. Yes, sir. We also understand that if you lose, you will cancel their taxes for the next three years. Not just Champagnet, but the entire province. If they lose, which they will, they will have to pay the Queen three times the tax. A young farmer with the help of a stranger. I want you to tell them that I would like to help them learn the game. Yes, must convince an entire village to risk everything and believe that any dream worth having next time I will shoot you is a dream worth fighting for Columbia TriStar Home Entertainment proudly presents one of the most remarkable productions in India's cinema history An epic musical. Filled with spectacular dance performances. And visuals that will make your spirit soar. From award-winning director Ashidosh Gowarikar. Starring acclaimed actor and producer Amir Khan. In a motion picture that BBC Online calls an Indian modern classic and a must-see. 
gone. Audience winner, the Locarno International Film Festival. Well, I mean, if BBC Online says it's a must-see film. That, and you, 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 you sound kind of sniffy already, Darren. You, you need to open your mind. This, I, I, I they, actually, they, they, when, 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 when we see an Indian uh, movie and it has those things that even, even we as, 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 as relative Philistines to um, <laughs> Indian to, cinema recognize, yeah, or to Bollywood, um, as in the the song and dance uh, they, numbers, and we're like, ah. They really uh, buried that lead, by the way. They did, because it wasn't until, like, <laughs> until, <laughs> until the, the trailer yeah. was almost over. They also, I noticed, focused a lot on characters speaking English as well. Yeah. Like, it was a very, it seems to me to be a very cynical trailer. Well, I mean... It's like, the, watch this movie. It doesn't have any singing and dancing until we get to the point where we have to actually confess and own up to the fact it has singing and dancing. I, I believe... Um, I may be mistaken, but I believe English is quite widely spoken in India. Um, it is indeed, yeah. Yeah, be, be, because there, 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 there are um, any number of uh, native languages in India. There's uh, Hindi and Gujarati and Tamil and Urdu and, well, um, etc. Et yeah. Um, but no, no, I, I just, I, it did that thing. I was watching it and it was the perfect the perfect foreign language trailer like you can tell yeah. that it had been bought it by a very merchant ivory but uh yeah. I, yeah and even like the the aspect ratio and stuff like that but i mean even stuff like focusing on the characters who speak english avoiding the use of subtitles in in the film um and then holding out on the song and dance scenes until the very end because let's face it you probably kind of have to own up to that yeah um, and then the quote um, from BBC Online, which was a very strange source to take a full quote from, to be honest. Yeah. And why not just call it the BBC says? Why not just, you know, <laughs> like, um, but I don't know. I'm curious. I'm actually very interested in seeing this. Yeah. I am actually, I'm quite looking forward to it. Um, it's a long one. It'll be, uh, it'll be fascinating. It's about three hours long. Oof. Yeah. So um, I hope you know about cricket. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I, I. I've um I've been meaning to 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 waste um a, a day learning um like the the to appreciate um cricket yeah because that's what I need in my life I think um, <laughs> even I... even when Ireland were um uh, beat uh, Pakistan in the West Indies in the in the cricket world cup I was like no still, still not going to watch not it. Worth investing. I know everyone else is getting on this bandwagon <laughs> for some reason but I remain apart from this yeah but anyway so you can catch us uh, talking about Lagan once upon a time in India next time um, you can follow us at the 250 you can listen to us on Stitcher on iTunes uh, please rate us leave a good review oh uh, give them your your, your, your website Oh, uh, you can also hit us up on the, the movie blog, which is, is where the site's hosted, where we do... That's a um, movie blog with a zero. zero instead of an O. Um, and we do basically uh, reviews and stuff, and we review the latest films. And given that it's summertime, we'll have lots of reviews of lots of the big hits of the summer. So like Dunkirk, for example, Wonder Woman, all that sort of stuff. So please feel free to check us out. Yeah, you you and your staff. My and my staff. At, at, at movie blog. I, yeah. I noticed you used the, <laughs> the, the Royal, Royal Wii. Wii. <laughs> <laughs> Please, Andrew. There could be investors listening. Um, but thank you very much, guys. All right. Talk to you. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. bye.